I'm Kim Clark, and I'm joined on the phone by music writer Wayne Robbins. He has written for The Village Voice and Rolling Stone, among others. He was editor-in-chief of Cream Magazine, and he wrote Bruce Springsteen's first Columbia Records bio. He has a new book called A Brief History of Rock, Off the Record. He currently works for Billboard Magazine, and he joins me from his New York office on the phone. So, Wayne, how long have you been writing about music? Well, I've been writing about music since um, the first paid thing I got, uh, the first thing I got paid to write about was in 1969, uh, when I spent uh, a year between colleges, between my sophomore and junior year, and found myself like many East Coast people I grew up in, in New York, um, doing, doing the 60s trip west, and uh, ended up in the Bay Area of California, and there was a concert in October of 1969 at Oakland Coliseum starring the Rolling Stones with Ike and Tina Turner, B.B. King, and a singer named Terry Reed, who was supposed to be the original singer of Led Zeppelin before he decided uh, not to do it, gave Robert Plant his opportunity. But this was, this was all one bill for uh, like a $7 ticket at Oakland Coliseum. <laughs> wow. And um, I went to the concert, and I stayed up all night writing about it. And one of the people in the rooming house uh, saw me the next morning uh, scribbling away, and uh, I told him what I, that I was you know, writing like an epic poem about the Stones concert. And this guy was a reporter for the Berkeley Barb, which was one of the uh, first and uh, best um, of the underground weekly publications back in the 60s, the the very beginnings of the alternative press. And uh, he said, well, you know, I don't think anybody from the Barb went to that concert. Our rock critic quit a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so why don't you whittle it down to... uh, uh, something uh, something publishable in length, and uh, come on over to the office and bring it in. And uh, so I did, and uh, the editor liked it and said he would publish it uh, and pay me 50 cents a column inch. Uh, it was 28 column inches, so I got $14. <laughs> uh, and my professional career was, was launched. Well, if you could show us over the radio a, a highlight reel of your career thus far, and not necessarily talking about perhaps the pieces that you've written, but some of the folks that you've rubbed elbows with. If we were watching your highlight reel, what would we see? Well, it would start with playing air guitar with Keith Richards. Whoa. The Rolling Stones. Um, the, the situation was uh, he was uh, doing interviews to uh, promote his involvement with as the music producer for the Chuck Berry film bio, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. This was around 1988 or 89. And uh, Keith, if, I had interviewed Keith Richards, I guess, a few times before. And um, I guess he felt comfortable enough to um, do what he usually do, did at interviews, which was take a bottle of a bourbon, uh, take out his switchblade, undo the seal of the bottle of bourbon with his switchblade, and start start to drink. And he was very generous and sharing his sharing his whiskey. <laughs> and so, after a few hours of conversation, he said, um, 
asked me if I wanted to hear some of the rough mixes of the uh, Hail Hail rock and roll soundtrack. And so we're in his little office studio in, in Manhattan, and uh, just the two of us. And so the two of us just start wailing away on air guitar. You know, I couldn't help myself. I just got <laughs> carried away. And, uh, and he, cause I, just, I just followed Keith's lead. So that you know, that's that's my my number one. Um, but uh, uh, from more interesting journalistically, perhaps was uh, three weeks I spent in Russia in the summer of 1987 covering Billy Joel's tour. Just 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 being in, in what was still the the evil empire, uh, as President Reagan called it at the time, was was obviously just a really exciting um, uh, highlight. I got to meet um, a number of Russian journalists, and during the uh, times when there wasn't a Billy Joel concert, uh, I would uh, go see uh, local bands that had to uh, find... uh, had had to perform unofficially and sort of in secret because rock rock musicians, unless you were licensed by the state at the time, they they considered you a bum and uh, a vagrant <laughs> or whatever. So it was it was it was a real eye opener. In the preface to your book, A Brief History of Rock Off the Record, you suggest that teachers could use this book to instruct students. And it's so funny, to, you know, I'm a baby boomer, and I have firsthand experience with most of what you write about, except the very early stuff. Uh, and so it seems strange to me to think of a rock and roll textbook, but I guess it is, we've reached that point that rock and roll is ancient history to many people now. That's true, especially when, when you go back as far as Elvis Presley. The young people today just have no idea how profoundly important Elvis Presley was in, uh, in this country's history, in the history of the 20th century. Train a Well, that long black train got my baby and gone. I make the point very early in the book that Elvis Presley, being a a, a southerner, uh, and in the first year that he he was getting played on radio stations in the South, uh, 1954, even before he became famous worldwide uh, was the uh, year that the Supreme Court made the Brown versus Board of Education decision outlawing segregation in the schools. And um, I think the, the, the physical and the change that Elvis Presley represented with his music and his look and the change that was uh, being uh, that was obviously going to have to come from the court decision, I think, made uh, a lot of adults very wary of rock and roll and helped create that uh, dividing line, what became known in the 60s as the generation gap, but it really began in the 50s with Elvis. Train, train, coming round, round the bend. Never will again. Never will again. 
also say very early in the book, and I think it's probably around the same area that you talk about the importance of Elvis, uh, you say the building blocks or, were there already for rock and roll. They were there before World War II, country, blues, gospel. But you write that rock and roll, the inception of it, was impossible before the early 50s. Why is that? Well, because um, it, it, it we didn't have teenagers as uh, an independent uh, demographic before the mid-1950s, before the, uh, the relative affluence of, of the post-World War II years when um, young people started to have a discretionary income and uh, had access to automobiles and money to buy uh, records and teen magazines and blue jeans and things like that. And so teenage, teenagers, for the first time, were had de- were developing a consciousness that was not exactly like that of their parents. Um, before the 1950s, I, th- I believe that you went from, from school to work, and there was not a lot of leisure time for young people to indulge themselves and to develop their own music and culture. When you think of early rock and roll, the the Sun Elvis stuff, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, all of the uh, Big Mama Thornton, all that kind of stuff, a lot of that that rawness seemed to have been kind of smoothed out by the early '60s. What was what was coming to play in there that caused that to happen? Well, the fact that rock and roll caught on so so big that the um, uh, that adults uh, saw that there was. Uh, a, a business, some money to be made, and uh, the popularity of TV shows like American Bandstand, uh, which brought um, music and, and the latest dances and the newest stars into American homes uh, after school, starting in the late 50s. Uh, that's when Dick Clark uh, began that show. Uh, and so uh, American Bandstand... Um, really like to have very photogenic performers, so the music became more bland and it became more important to look good than sound good, which is why we went through that teen idol period in the late 50s uh, into the early 60s with uh, Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, Fabian, and many, many others. Each time we have a quarrel, it almost breaks my heart. Cause I'm so afraid that we will have to part Each night I ask the stars above Why must I be a teenager in love? The rawness uh, had been driven out of the music in order to make it more saleable to a wider range of, of, of young people. Well, following the early 60s, I guess if you're looking for a line of demarcation where everything truly got all shaken up was uh, with the assassination of of President Kennedy in November of 63. And then only, I guess, three months later, the Beatles came to America. And much has been made in the the rock press 
about how significant the arrival of the Beatles was in kind of bringing the country out of the doldrums or out of this melancholy mood we were all in. Do you put credence in that? I mean, what uh, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm a strong believer in that, uh, largely because um, you have to remember that before the Beatles uh, actually showed up here in early 1964, they were being played on the radio. And when did they first start being played on the radio? Uh, around November 1963. So... Uh, it was it was a much closer uh, in prox- proximity uh, th- this this really new fresh uplifting uh, rock and roll sound of the Beatles, uh, which really did I believe I know it did for me I was in ninth grade and uh, beginning of ninth grade in the fall of 1963 and I was uh, it was a very morose time it was. Uh, very, very depressing, uh, a very depressing autumn. And you hear this music on the radio. Oh, yeah, i tell you something. I think you'll understand. When I say that something, I want to hold your hand. and fun and exciting and they were so much fun uh, they were so witty and and clever uh, they made it possible to have fun again when you move through the music scene in the 60s i mean it just moved so quickly girl groups the british invasion motown the muscle shoals sound by the end of the 60s you're headed into to hard rock but it seems to me that one of the important developments in the 60s was the focus of the music industry and from the artist i guess first leading this was away from songs and singles, and by the late 60s, albums were important. What what was the driving force behind that? Was it just Sgt. Pepper? Uh, it was it was uh, actually a, probably a little before Sgt. Pepper. Uh, probably, uh, I think, the Beatles' previous albums, Revolver and Rubber Soul, uh, especially Rubber Soul, I think, was really a... Um, uh, conceived as uh, or felt like uh, when you listen to it, it felt like a coherent work with a single point of view or from or different points of view, but from a from a very coherent artistic vision. Um, so th- there was that, and then of course Bob Dylan's uh, bringing it all back home in 1965. And then Highway 61 we visited, also in 1965. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall, you thought they were all kidding you. Please. 
like a Rolling Stone wasn't just a hit single drawn from a Bob Dylan album, all of Highway 61 Revisited. You play it from beginning to end and really feel like you had gone on a, on a, gone on a journey with the artist. The, uh, interestingly enough, I, uh, one thing, I, a point that I try to make in the book that I think historically has been overlooked somewhat is that the Beach Boys were also one of the groups that were moving from a singles-oriented uh, presentation to viewing the album as the, um, the essence of, of their uh, musical expression. And of course, uh, Brian Wilson, the uh, leader and songwriter and producer of the Beach Boys, he was particularly the driving force. And what I uh, came across in researching the book was how competitive Brian Wilson was with the Beatles and with Bob Dylan and uh, with the Rolling Stones, who were also starting to make really sort of coherent albums with December's Children and Aftermath. And all of these, actually, these people were all very, very keenly aware of what the others were doing. And the, the Beatles were, were just as competitive with uh, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys as Brian was with them. When, when uh, Paul McCartney heard Pet Sounds, uh, the Beach Boys, uh, probably the most their most famous, artistically famous album, he said, uh, oh my goodness, you know, we're really going to have to, uh, the Beatles are really going to have to work hard to top this. I guess I just wasn't made for these times Every time I get the inspiration to go change To help me look for places where new things might be found Where can I turn when I fear with the friends come out? What's it all about? Each time things start to happen again I think I got something good going for myself And what goes You know, as you move through the late 60s and into the 70s, there's there's so many changes that we could talk about, and your book does a, a really good job of, of putting all these these uh, developments in context, which I found very valuable. Because a lot of the stuff I, you know, just the basic facts I knew, but it helped put everything in context and kind of a timeline. Because you're, you're talking about uh, instrumental virtuosity, especially guitar virtuosity, starting to emerge, and then you have the festivals coming in and, and affecting the scene. But when you move into the 70s, uh, just from my personal experience and just my, I guess, my own view, it seems like the innovation really seemed to slow down. You had a lot of talented artists that emerged, but the, the innovation and, the, and a lot of that stuff just seemed to have kind of been done already. What, what do you see as the most significant rock and roll events of the 70s? Well, I, I, think, I think 
that uh, I think that what happened in the 70s was people had hoped that, that there would be a sort of rock and roll culture that would define a youth culture that would, that would define this country and the direction of the country for years to come. That was something that rock and roll and uh, the uh, political, the anti-war movement, uh, the uh, late, later parts of the civil rights movement, and of course the um, the, the more benign part of, of, of the the drug scene in the '60s, the the uh, mind expansion, so to speak, that came that many artistic people felt came with smoking marijuana. A culture did not develop out of that. Um, what developed was a culture of commerce. Uh, we also youth culture also, unfortunately found hard drugs, and what happened at the end of the 60s and very early in the 70s was um, actually one of the things that, that could have killed rock and roll was was the uh, the overdoses in quick succession of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison of The Doors. I mean, these, these were... These were tremendously talented people who were only like 27 years old when they died. It, it makes me sick to think of, of what Jimi Hendrix might have accomplished in, in his life musically if he, had, if he had lived and continued to be as adventurous as he had been. Beatles broke up. Uh, the uh, the protests against the Vietnam War had not succeeded in stopping the war, and uh, people were exhausted. Uh, young people were exhausted at the end of the '60s. There, there was so much energy uh, projected during that period that that what happened was, I, I think, very representative of what happened to the culture was uh, it's represented by the music of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I think, and uh, songs like Our House and um, Teach Your Children. They were sort of, uh, they were sort of signals to, uh, they kind of moved people away from collective political and social action and um, sort of encouraged people to take care of their own, their own business, their own lives.
the one you know by. Don't you ever ask them why? If they told you you would cry, so just look at them and sigh and know they love you. From that, uh, you know, the singer-songwriters uh, thing developed uh, James Taylor and uh, Joni Mitchell and Elton John, you know, all, uh, Neil Young, you know, some some great artists, uh, actually, but it was, the music had become a bit softer and more reflective and um, uh, less intense. Uh, at the same time, you had Led Zeppelin uh, starting out and making its impact and, uh, and heavy metal developing. And uh, you had um, popular groups. Um, you, had, you had groups that appealed to all sorts of different different fragments, and you had the development of, um, I, I guess, the super. It was called the superstar, uh, superstars radio format, which started to focus just on a um, select group of popular artists, and that's that slowed down the, the creative evolution of, of, of rock as well. But I think that this, the seventies um, really get uh, some of the pop songs of the seventies. I mean, Debbie Boone's "You Light Up My Life" <laughs> uh, and um, things like that. Uh, Three Dog Nights, "Joy to the World." You know, those those songs were. You know, when people think of the seventies, they think of that, and they think of um, "Boogie Oogie Oogie" uh, <laughs> by A Taste of Honey and all those one-hit uh, disco records. But when you look back. And you see that um, Rod Stewart uh, developing, his, starting his solo career, and the work he did with the Faces. It's also it's also hard for might be hard for uh, young people today who, who see Rod Stewart doing his four four albums of the Great American <laughs> Songbook to understand how how vital and creative and um, entertaining a, a rock and roller Rod Stewart was in his prime. I mean, there was there was no better performer and. He was a great songwriter, Maggie May, and um, tunes like that. I mean, Rod was great. You had Lou Reed um, and his solo career, and David Bowie taking taking music in, in yet another direction, and uh, and then of course punk rock, uh, which came along in the in the mid seventies. And I mean, the Ramones were seemed probably pretty were probably pretty incoherent musically their first few gigs, but they got to be very tight and. Um, and I think also that the Ramones are probably one of the most underrated um, forces in American music. Talking to Wayne Robbins, longtime music writer and author of the book A Brief History of Rock Off the Record. And the book uh, goes on and covers uh, the music of the 80s, the uh, effect of MTV and so forth, and through the disco era. But I want to kind of fast forward to the future for music. And right now we're looking at downloads and stuff going on, on people's iPods. How is this new technology affecting rock music? Where is it headed? The one good thing that's going on now is 
the uh, decentralization of the music business and to know the uh, the music itself uh, the fate of the music the fate of the artist is no longer solely in the hands of the four major uh, corporate um, record companies. So there are more ways now for artists to get their music heard, uh, whether it's uh, from uh, MySpace page getting a lot of hits and attracting the attention of, of an indie label, uh, or getting uh, getting their music on Grey's Anatomy. You know, it amazes me. I think that, that Grey's Anatomy is like today's A&R um, Grey's Anatomy breaks a tremendous amount of, of new music, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of cases they use music from previously unknown or, or little known artists um, who become big after their songs are heard on the show. Yeah, I've actually heard a lot of the artists that I've talked to here who've come into play in our studios talking about how important it is to get you know what they call music placement in these shows, and people are just. They're just discovering music in all these, um, all these different places now. One thing that interests us from a radio standpoint is the, the quality of the devices or the quality of the sound that people are getting, not the quality of the music. But, you know, for a while there in the 70s and the 80s, you had this big, you know, four-foot-tall speakers in your house if you're a true music fan. And now it's all coming through, to, through earbuds for many people. I mean, what, is, what do you think that is doing, if anything? Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting that in the early 60s when um, Motown was, uh, was in its prime uh, or its early prime, um, one thing that uh, Barry Gordy used to do was he would play um, a new record through the smallest speakers he had um, because to him... He wanted to know what it would sound like on a on a car radio, um, and car radios, of course, weren't moving sound systems at the time either. Uh, so, um, you know, I think I, I don't think that um, that the technology affects the music that much. What I what I what I do think is that it's made it possible. Uh, tools like Pro Tools uh, have made it possible for. Uh, more people to be able to get their music recorded and to get it uh, heard. Uh, some, even if it's only getting heard by um, a few hundred or a few thousand people, uh, without having to sign record contracts and things like that. I, th- I, th- I think that what artists are going to uh, are coming to terms with now is that their income, that their their career, if revenue is going to be based on what they earn from performing, from touring, doing live gigs, much more so than in the past. Uh, An artist can no longer count on the royalties from a hit record or a huge selling album uh, making them wealthy. And and, um, maybe... Maybe sort of that's a good thing too. Maybe that will create less of a star system and something more. Uh, here, here comes that word, more egalitarian. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. But uh, again, that you know, the the Asheville scene is as far as as I have been able to understand it from a distance, and while, while I'm looking forward to coming down there, uh, it seems to be uh, in a kind of 
place that where where people are still playing because and and going and hearing the music because they love the music and it has not uh, a big corporate commercial um, commercially driven situation yet and to me that's that's a positive scene um, you know I'm sure there there are bands who would rather have platinum albums and uh, be touring Europe and playing stadiums um, every summer, but that's not for everyone. We've been talking to Wayne Robbins, uh, the author of A Brief History of Rock Off the Record. Wayne, I could talk to you all day. This has been so much so much fun and so interesting. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Kim. It's, it's uh, really been my pleasure. Like it.